Hermione Granger and the Silent Country. From There Is Nothing to Fear by Santissi Day. Read by Sam Gabriel. Based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Chapter 27 Hard to Beat as soon as they had caught their breath, Hermione and Dimitri immediately set off. Both of them wanted to put more space between themselves and the Dementor. "'I think that it noticed you,' Hermione said. The Dementor didn't have eyes, but she thought it was reasonable to assume something about a Dementor's attention by its posture, much like she often assumed of Riddle. It had turned to face her, after all. Though they hadn't said anything for a long time— Dimitri didn't need to be told what she was talking about. "'I think you're right,' he said quietly as they picked their way through the underbrush. "'With any luck it will say nothing. It does not have eyes, so it will not know I was under an invisibility cloak. Perhaps it will think that you are with Victor or Fleur.' "'Are you sure?' Hermione asked. "'That it won't know that you have an invisibility cloak. I mean—' None of the champions had brought an invisibility cloak with them, and so none of them should have one. It might not matter anyway. Hermione knew very little about the senses of a Dementor, and for all she knew, the Dementor had directly experienced whatever Dimitri had relived, and could identify him as somebody who didn't belong. Dimitri didn't answer immediately. "'Not completely,' he admitted. "'But if I am wrong, there is not much that we can do about it. Besides, you are not the one who is at risk.' It wasn't obvious to Hermione that she wasn't at risk, but Dimitri certainly had the most to lose. And what about you? She still hadn't decided exactly how she felt about what Dimitri had told her, but Azkaban wasn't the answer. Not even a murderer, Hermione thought, should be given over to the Dementors. She had never liked the idea of them, and now that she had experienced one for herself and seen what it had done to Dimitri, Hermione could not see it as anything less than torture. And if greater wrongdoing brought forth greater suffering, as Dimitri's emotional torment seemed to indicate, then there couldn't be anything so evil that its perpetrators deserved dementation. Hermione doubted that Riddle would make any other palatable solutions. "'I will figure something out,' he said. Once their initial dread gave way to ordinary fatigue, they stopped to make camp, for which Hermione was grateful." She was tired and wanted to rest for the night, but it was also an opportunity to give space to her thoughts. By far the most important revelation of the day was that Dimitri both was and was not Dimitri. Clearly he was the boy that she had known all this time, but he was not exactly someone that anybody from Durmstrang would have recognized as Dmitri Polyakov, not now. In hindsight, everything made rather more sense now than when Hermione thought that Dimitri was a werewolf. Even his poor demeanor when the when the Death Eater was found dead was more than a coincidental blanching. It had nothing to do with the phases of the moon. Dinner was another stew of suspicious-looking bark and mushrooms, with a few greenish-brown dirigible plums that had been found along the way. They were underripe, small and sour, and felt heavy in her stomach, but Hermione couldn't care less. At that point, the dirigible plums might as well have held the nectar of the gods, and her only regret was that there weren't more. Norway is not all a cold and barren place like people often think, Dimitri remarked. 
Our summer days are long and bright, and the dirigible plums float higher in Norway, Denmark than anywhere else. And we have blueberries and blue currants and... Dimitri, Hermione interrupted, looking at the softly glowing pit of her final dirigible plum. Please, stop talking about food. Right. I was thinking about sending you to find Fleur and Victor, Hermione said. It was just a glimmer of a thought, and she hadn't fully sold herself on it, but she really wanted to turn the topic to anything else, and... No, Dimitri said. And Hermione, startled, nearly dropped the pit from her hand. Fleur would skin me. We have gotten over this already. I'm not sure exactly what Fleur said, but you must have misunderstood, right? I don't know if you grew up speaking English, if your father was British, but Fleur... Well, her English isn't bad, but uh, I'm just trying to say you're uh, involved, not new. Flo would never hurt somebody that she... That, that she... Gradually, it became more difficult to speak each word a little more like a pebble stuck in her throat. Was she allergic to dirigible plums? I am certainly not... I do not think that Flo and I are involved... But you... I, I saw you, Dimitri. I mean, I wasn't eavesdropping. I just happened to... Hermione swallowed and pressed on. In the Chapel Grove, you were very... Uh, uh, close. In the Chapel Grove? Dimitri asked. And Hermione described the area, sidetracking herself for a couple of minutes as that led to something which she'd read about a ghost called the Fat Friar who used to visit before... Oh, there, Dimitri said. His voice had a far-off, slightly worried tone. No, that was when she was threatening me. I'm really sure it wasn't as bad. No, no, Fleur was very clear. If you should be harmed in any way, then first I will be skinned, and then I remember something about my eyes being turned to jam, but I think that there was something else before that. Fleur was extremely detailed. I cannot remember all of it, but anyway, point is this. The two of you, well, you are willing to die for Fleur. Are you not? Hermione didn't need to think about that at all. Of course. Yes, well, she loves you enough to kill for you, Dimitri said. All right, but Fleur doesn't love me. I mean, not like that, Hermione said, almost laughing. Why not? Because I'm a protege, Dimitri. It's not against the rules to date your mentor, not exactly, but it's frowned upon, Dimitri. And Fleur has been on the foot of every letter of even... The tacit rules, especially uh, in the past couple of years, Hermione said. But as she spoke, a part of her brain couldn't let the idea go. It was ridiculous, of course, patently absurd, but even so, people didn't always act how they felt, and even when they did, their actions could be misinterpreted. Against her will, Hermione's thoughts floated back to a conversation she'd had with Victor during the Yule Ball. But, of course, she does not approve the age difference. That is hard for her, Victor had told her. She had thought, of course she had thought, that Victor was talking about Fleur's disapproval of the age difference between herself and Victor. Fleur is, how do you say it... You are very dear to her. Victor had been trying to tell her all the way back in fucking December, and she'd missed it because of a fucking... fucking language barrier. What word had Victor been looking for? Was it simply love or something stronger, more specific, less ambiguous? 
Of course, she and Fleur loved each other. Hermione would have freely said that at any point, but there was love, and there was love. But Victor had tried to tell her, and Hermione just hadn't picked up on what he meant to say. All of a sudden she felt very ill, as if she had eaten nothing of those dirigible plums except for the stones. Perhaps they were bad when they were too underripe, or she'd completely misidentified them, her breath caught in her throat. Her heart seemed to skip and flutter, her face and ears burned. Dimitri was saying something, but she couldn't force herself to pay him any attention. She needed to tell him about the dirigible plums, or maybe it was the mushrooms, or maybe she wasn't ill at all. Oh, my God. Hermione stood totally still, as if she'd been petrified while her brain went over the facts again. Oh, my God, I love Fleur. "'That took you long enough?' Dimitri's laugh echoed from nowhere. "'For a while there I wasn't sure what was going on, "'if you were just keeping Victor around for the sake of appearances. "'Victor, whom she was dating, but—' "'Shit! Fucking brothel of shit!' "'You swear a lot. "'They called me goddammit!' "'Hermione shook her head. "'Dimitri, what do I do?' "'You're asking me?' Well, yes, I mean, in retrospect, it's pretty obvious that you've been involved in this, and you know me better than I know myself, apparently. Dimitri chuckled. I am nodding in acknowledgement, though you cannot see. Victor isn't averse to sharing, if that helps. Every neuron in Hermione's brain seemed to shudder and freeze at once. What? Wait, I, no. We can talk about that later, she said. But inside her brain was still malfunctioning. What? What? Congratulations, you are about to have very little time for studying. I will give you some space to process the bad news, Dimitri said. Hermione groaned, unable to say anything coherent, but they went to bed in companionable silence. Hermione wasn't one to assign much worth to dreams, which she had never found any use for. If something bad had to be divined, then she could do it with an omnasticon and a slide rule. Sleep was a necessary evil, or at least a demon that she hadn't yet figured out how to exercise. But a night in which she didn't dream was a good night. But that night, Morpheus seemed to have it in for Hermione in particular. She was riding a horse alongside Fleur. Only the horse was a Thestral, as she'd seen it illustrated in books, down to the woodcut finish, and Fleur was carrying a cup full of fish and wearing armor like Jean d'Arc. Fleur offered the cup to Hermione, who felt deliriously happy to have it. When she turned back to the road, she saw three Dementors, dancing slowly together and raising golden cups to the dark spaces beneath their hoods. Fearless for herself, worried for Fleur's sake, Hermione threw a pumpkin at the Dementors who faced her, saw her, she could hear them breathe, feel their breath on her face, and they offered her their cups full of fruit. Then she looked up at them again, and there were no Dementors at all but only Dimitri, fully visible in a Dementor's cowl and holding the Triwizard Cup in his hands. He smacked her on the head with it and woke her with a start. Fortunately, the morning light banished her nocturnal memories as efficiently as it ever did, and she set to work on breakfast. 
Dimitri couldn't climb up to get it himself, but he'd found a nesting blackbird before Hermione woke up, and she was able to scare it away and levitate down the nest, so they were able to add a few eggs to their breakfast. The eggs were the tiniest that she'd ever had, and the taste reminded her of pigeon eggs, less than satisfying, but better than tree bark. "'What next?' asked Dimitri. "'We go after the Black Knight, that's what.' After the Dementor, the prospect of a spooky chevalier hardly faced her, not that she was going to charge headlong without thinking over at first. Plan A was to just get the key. Starting with an attempt at summoning it, neither of them expected that to work any better on the Black Knight's key than on the one that Hermione had retrieved from the Trioctopodes, but it would cost them nothing to try. There were a few other variations of that idea, plans A2 and so on, but they were nothing that Hermione and Dimitri wanted to count on. After that, it might be worth trying a full body bind, Hermione said. I don't think that it'll work. A first you could cast that. But if I have the time, that's worth a try. Maybe a stunning spell? What if it is entirely warded against magic? proposed Dimitri. It's an enchanted suit of armor, isn't it? It would be an extremely complicated interface to accomplish both of those at once. Even as she spoke, Hermione began to frown. All right. We'll assume a worst-case scenario. If none of that works, then I could use an exploding charm. Hermione didn't consider herself to be very skilled in those, but she was at least competent. What if that doesn't work? Hermione frowned again, this time in the direction of Dimitri's voice. The exploding charm affects a point in space. I don't need to target the Black Knight in order to hit it. But what if that doesn't work? Dimitri pressed. Or worse, what if the pieces continue to move? Excuse me? You can't be sure that breaking the armor will break the enchantment. Perhaps each limb will crawl on its own even faster than before, and now you have more than one thing to worry about. You're a real pessimist, Hermione said, but you're not necessarily wrong. I spent a lot of time thinking about the contingencies this year, and I still failed. So what if the exploding charm doesn't work how you expect it to? Then I'll give it the Dementor treatment and smash it. That did not really work, Dimitri said. The Dementor gave you the key. That was true, but the less that Hermione thought about any of that, the better. It was better to think of Dementors as things than to imagine them as actors, as free-willed beings which would lead her to wonder what sort of creature could bear to be a Dementor. Besides, the important fact was that a big enough trunk might have actually hurt it, never mind that Hermione had been in no state to levitate one. But maybe levitating something big wasn't what they needed after all. "'What do you think of this?' she said. And she began to fill Dimitri in on her plan. They began work immediately following breakfast. After a couple of hours of work and careful inspection of the results, Hermione judged that everything was ready. They broke for a mid-morning snack of cambium and pine-needle soup. Either Hermione's standards were loosening or she was getting better at preparing the stuff— Hermione double-checked her slate map, and then they crossed the river. The Black Knight was standing where Hermione had left it the day before, as motionless as one of the suits of armor that decorated the halls of Hogwarts, so Hermione, slowly, carefully, proceeded with Plan A not. Just walk up and grab the key. They had agreed that Dimitri couldn't do it, because the judges would surely suspect something if they'd jinxed the key against levitation, and then Hermione appeared to levitate it, but each cautious step made Hermione reconsider that decision just a little. The points on that cudgel, the edge on that hatchet, were uncomfortably sharp-looking. 
Hermione was still fifteen feet away when the Black Knight shifted on its feet, turning ever so slightly in her direction, and she immediately froze mid-step. Maybe a minute later she placed her foot back where it had come from, inhaled deeply and lifted her wand. Neither summoning nor levitating the key did anything so far as she could see, however, so Hermione produced to plan A3 and began to levitate a thin branch about as long as her forearm. As the branch approached ever closer to the Black Knight, nothing happened, but the air itself seemed to grow thick with tension, and Hermione took a few nervous steps backward. Finally, the branch reached the Black Knight. Still nothing. Carefully, she threaded the branch through the loop of the Black Knight's necklace. As if a spell had been broken, the Black Knight rushed her. Hermione was immediately full of regrets. That she never had an interest in cardio, that she decided to steal a key from the Black Knight, but soon enough she tossed those regrets to the side. She only had enough space in her thoughts for running and cussing, and maybe a side of panic. Turning half around as she continued to run, Hermione threw a stunning spell, and the goddamned thing dodged the stunner, and the next jinx after that, twisting with supernatural grace and hardly losing any ground on her. Shit, 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 it wasn't supposed to be fast. Hermione cast a freezing charm behind her, and the grass turned white and stiff below the Black Knight's sabatons. It slipped, swung its axe into a tree to catch itself, transformed a fall into a lunge, and continued to give chase. She toppled a tree, prepared ahead of time, already half-felled, and the Black Knight parried it like a staff with a blow of its hammer. The Black Knight was a little slower on its feet than her, she had that much to her advantage, but she was getting tired and it was not which made sense, given that it was probably an enchanted suit of armor. For a moment Hermione thought she wouldn't make it, but no sooner had she lost faith than she heard clanking and the crash of plate armor, and Hermione spared a second to look behind her and confirm that the Black Knight had stumbled, or rather it had been tripped. Dimitri had taken up position with a disillusionment log, which he had levitated. Any spectators would hopefully think that she had done the work herself— one gauntlet planted itself against the ground, and then the other, and the Black Knight pushed itself off the ground as Hermione pushed herself faster, willing herself to keep going even as her legs burned. Just ahead of her was a short metal rod, almost impossible to see if she hadn't known where to look. She was almost in position. Hermione turned around just a few seconds later, almost spinning, almost tripping herself as she passed the rod and waved her wand. Just below the topsoil, a hidden floor untransfigured itself, and the ground collapsed, taking the Black Knight along with it into a ten-foot-deep pit that Hermione and Dimitri had excavated that morning. There was no sound of movement, nothing but Hermione's own hurried breathing and her racing heartbeat. "'Is it finished?' the air said behind her, and Hermione nearly leapt out of her skin. "'Son of a whore, Dimitri!' Hermione took a deep breath and let it out slowly. "'Yes, I think it's finished,' she said, cautiously approaching the pit. "'Then—oh, my God,' Hermione whispered. "'The Black Knight wasn't just a suit of armor after all. There was blood in the pit. It's—his helmet had been bent out of shape by the fall and knocked askew. Beneath the helm, the Black Knight wore a balaclava, almost as dark as its armor—' Between her viewing angle and the Black Knight's own position, she could see only a single eye, but it was an eye. "'Should we help him, sir? B Black Knight, are you all right?' Of course he wasn't all right. He was bleeding. 
his left leg was bent in a direction which it definitely was not meant to bend, that eye of his cold and grey stared up without focus or intent. For a horrible moment, Hermione worried that he was dead and she was a murderer, and then he blinked. "'He still has the key,' Dimitri said. And Hermione, remembering the reason for which they'd confronted the Black Knight in the first place, forced herself to focus. The Black Knight was still alive, and she had done nothing to him which could not be repaired by magic. If he was even a person, honestly, it could be an illusion, or even an inferius. Hermione was jumping to conclusions by thinking that this was a person. Wouldn't a person have cried out in pain? Could a person have remained so deathly still? The Black Knight was just an it. Nothing to worry about, Hermione decided, and she tried a second time to return her attention to the key. Even if the Black Knight hadn't been too far for her to reach, Hermione wouldn't have tried to retrieve the key by hand anyway. Instead, after verifying that the key itself was still directly unobtainable by magic, Hermione levitated another stick into the pit. This time she retrieved the key without any trouble. With the third key in hand, Hermione returned to the Tomblerone of Night. Curious about what would happen, she tried to fit the keys in the other two doors, but they refused to enter, as if the holes had been filled up with glass. Only when she used a keyhole on the Hogwarts door was she able to make any progress. When the third key had been inserted and turned, the door shimmered and glinted and slid upwards, a bit like the automatic doors in a muggle store. Inside was a bare, black-stoned room, almost featureless except for faint grooves in the walls and a pit at the center of the floor. The pit was lined with long spines, reminding Hermione unpleasantly of a sea turtle's throat that she had once harvested in potions. "'Are we supposed to climb down?' "'You,' Dimitri said, and Hermione looked up in the direction of his voice. "'I cannot go down,' he said, and Hermione understood.' She was going to have a hard enough time as it was. If Dimitri tried to follow after her, his invisibility cloak might be in tatters by the time they reached the bottom. Hermione took a deep breath. "'I'll see you later,' she said, and she began the reverse climb. "'I don't mind the... I'll be fine,' Hermione insisted. "'Say hello to Fleur and Victor for me if they come after me.' The climb was easier said than done." It might not have taken so long, if not for how slowly she descended, but that couldn't be helped. Hermione felt as though a sloth could have outpaced her at times, but it was a little hard to see, and even in her sluggish caution she kept nicking herself on the spikes. None of her cuts were serious, and she tried to heal herself, but they didn't respond well to magic. At least the bleeding was slow. The bottom was deathly quiet and just as still. Hermione could just barely see the edge of a black lake— whose surface could almost be mistaken for a sea of dark glass. The water almost looked like it could be walked across, but that would obviate the need for the three boats that floated beside the shore. And there were four metal poles as well, each with a rope, and each boat was linked to a pole by one of those ropes, which had been looped through a circuit on the prow. The fourth pole was friendless. Its rope lay across the ground, its end dipped into the water like a thirsty snake. The third boat, on the other hand, held a corpse in stone effigy, with two small discs, also stone, over its eyes. With their concentric circles, they resembled the tokens that Hermione had been given at the beginning of the task, and she removed one from her pocket to confirm the match. 
Evidently, the dark Toblerone was just another step in the third task. Across the lake, something glowed with a sickly yellow light. Was it the Triwizard Cup or something else? Hermione tried the summoning charm again, but it worked as well as she expected it to, which was not at all. And when she disturbed the surface of the water with a wind-blowing jinx, it burbled as though boiling, and Hermione thought she saw a hint of movement in the depths. Swimming was definitely not the intended method of travel, and probably wasn't a safe method either, so Hermione untied the boat to the right of the stone cadaver, then sat down in it. Nothing happened, even when she rocked the boat a little from side to side. She transfigured her basket into a pole, stuck it fast to the floor of the boat with a sticking charm, and then tied up her blanket and tried to sail from port with the help of the wind-blowing jinx. When the wind failed to move her, Hermione decided to row her way across, and she split the pole in two and transfigured each into an oar. As soon as she put the first oar in the water, something seized it, and moments later she was left with a long, broken stick. Well, at least she had already written off swimming, but it was still annoying. That was the second time this week that some sort of marine beast had stolen her basket. Her gaze fell on the stone figure in the boat on her left, and she withdrew a token from her pocket again. Icomnis concernis inapsinu meta she muttered to herself. That boatman Karen bears across the deep such as be sepulchred with holy care. What she had mistaken for a seed could also, Hermione realized, be interpreted as a kind of eye. Laying down on the boat herself, Hermione placed the token over one eye, then another token over the other, leaving the third in her pocket. Immediately the boat began to move, but when she sat up, tokens falling to the floor, the boat halted. It did not move again until Hermione, grumbling somewhat, lay back down with the tokens in their proper place. While the boat took her across the lake, one more in number than the boats, and wondered who it was that had gotten here before her, and who she would meet on the other side, as much as she hated to wish for Fleur to have failed at anything, Hermione wasn't sure whether she would be able to, to, to face her, knowing what she did now, and still stay focused on the work ahead, whatever it might be. She felt a blow to the heart jut at the thought. Dimitri was right, Hermione said to no one, as if she hadn't already admitted it. But when the boat bumped up against the second shore, there was no one to greet her, only a work table, a large armoire, and a stone well that bore, once again, the crest of Hogwarts. If the station was for her alone, then was there no chance to sabotage the other champions at this juncture? Hermione hardly wanted to interfere with anyone, of course, but the option would have been nice, since that would have entailed the ability to work with them, too. Hermione disembarked gingerly, half sore that the boat was going to leave her before she'd put both feet on steady ground, but even after she left, the boat remained. Probably she was supposed to take it back. She checked the well first, and was taken aback to see the Triwizard Cup inside, just a couple inches below the surface of the water, which itself was almost high enough to spill over the side of the basin. On instinct, or at least without thought, Hermione reached for it, only to bruise her fingertips against a surface that was as unyielding as the stones that encircled it. The only indication that she had not come up against glass or crystal was that her touch had created faint ripples, which faded even as she watched them. Another, more tentative nudge replicated the effect, and as she traced letters across its surface, the water, or whatever it was, behaved just as it might had she done the same to any other water. 
Then a drop of blood ran down her forearm and dropped off her wrist. The potion rippled, and the blood sank below the potion's surface, rounding into a perfect crimson pearl in the course of its descent. Well, the workspace hadn't been put here just because Riddle was out of storage space, so there had to be a solution. On the table were dozens of small packets, each labeled three times over in English, French, and Latin, which Hermione might have appreciated better had some of the packets not been so small that the writing upon them was cramped and almost as hard to read as a foreign language might have been. At least there wasn't too much distortion when she carefully lest the contents be disrupted, cat enlarging charms on a few of the labels. In the armoire were dozens of vessels, ranging from simple cups to complex arrangements of glass and metal vessels, not to mention tools and more potions ingredients, carefully organized by element, kingdom, and name. Hermione took a sharp penknife and a shallow bowl over to the well, intending to scrape off some of the enchanted water so that she could test it, but when she pressed the rim of the bowl to the surface, it dipped below as though it were only normal water after all. Excitedly, but with careful slowness, Hermione reached for the Triwizard Cup again, only to fail once again to penetrate the surface. She was able to dip the bowl without any trouble and even fill it with water, but no matter how often she drew the bowl away, brim full, and dumped its contents on the ground beside her, the well refilled itself before she could return to collect another bowl full of water. But the spilled water on the stony ground remained too. Hermione filled the bowl again, then brought it to the work table and began to run a series of experiments. It was the work of just a few minutes to confirm that the well fluid adhered quite strongly to the characteristics of elemental water, dense, only a little less tenacious than earth against attempts to change its nature, and well integrated with whatever enchantments and potions had been intermixed with it. After she got a small furnace going, Hermione heated a cauldron of the stuff, then began the slow process of teasing out the additional, more potent qualities of the potion. Outside of the basin, it was possible to penetrate the surface of the well fluid with foreign substances, and so, while Hermione stirred with a silver rod, she added white rose petals, powdered moonstone, a chip of fire agate, and the lymph heart of a clabbert. Each ingredient suggested something about the potion that she was working with and indicated what she ought to add next. It was a type of vitreous fluid, but there were clearly conditions under which that quality could be bypassed, a key of the sort that she had needed to unlock the first task's orbs. The bowl was capable of entering the basin, but it wasn't large enough to make contact with the Triwizard Cup, and transfiguring the bowl into a longer, thinner form disrupted whatever enchantment had made that possible. Even after the bowl was returned to its original shape, it remained unable to penetrate the surface of the water, and so Hermione had to resort to other yet unaltered dishes to do that for her. Thinking back to the only other substance she'd seen penetrate the water, Hermione wiped some of her blood across a spoon, but while it penetrated the water, she wasn't able to budge the Triwizard Cup out of place. It was probably stuck to the bottom, but no spell she cast could affect that or accomplish anything else. Blood was clearly important, and yet nothing Hermione attempted could replicate the effect. Elemental blood was characterized by heat and moisture, by humoral sanguinity, and there were any number of ingredients by which she ought to be able to make a satisfactory concoction. Crushed cucumber, ram's milk and rooster's eggs, red clover and garlic, a bottle of Amarone wine, but no matter which ingredient she prepared or how, the potion in the well did not react. 
The same went for conjured blood and blood transfigured from other substances, and if she multiplied her blood, then it displaced the well-fluid somewhat, but far less than it ought to. Perhaps, Hermione slowly acknowledged to herself, it was useless to think of substitutes. But it wouldn't do to get ahead of herself, so there was at least one more test that she would need to perform. After half turning her face away, Hermione cast a parchment-shredding charm on herself. The sting came late, like a paper cut. A pisky, she incanted, almost hissing, and both the pain and the shallow cuts disappeared. Unlike the cuts dealt by that thorny midnight taproot that she descended, Hermione's self-inflicted wounds were no harder to treat than she expected. That settled it, Hermione thought sourly. There was only one way for this to go. Nevertheless, she spent a few frustrated minutes circling and pacing, and rummaging through the rest of the armoire for a hint of an alternative. None of it mattered. If she were Riddle, there would be only one solution to this problem. Hermione held her arm over a bowl, then took several breaths. He was going to do more than sting this time. Defendo, she incanted. The blood ran freely but softly, like a gentle stream, and when Hermione judged she had enough and to spare and cast the patch-up charm, the wound mended without complaint. It was only a memory now. There was only so much blood that Hermione could stand to lose if she couldn't multiply it, and that wasn't enough to displace the well water. But her experiment with the blood-coated spoon proved that she didn't need to displace it. With the help of a partly imperturbable cloth, Hermione applied a coat of blood to her arm like painting a fence, and once her arm was bright and red from the tips of her fingers to the bump of her elbow, Hermione reached into the well. Past the surface her hand went, and into the glassy fluid went her arm, and her fingers closed around the neck of the Triwizard Cup. The Triwizard Cup shimmered as she touched it, and then... nothing. Even after she pulled the cup all the way out of the basin. For a minute Hermione wondered whether there was yet another trick, but there was no other spell that she could uncover, to say nothing of the porky charm that she'd been told about so Hermione resolved to at least bring the cup back up to the surface so that Dimitri could take a look at it. As soon as Hermione sat herself down on the boat, it began to move again, and on the way back Hermione could see what she had missed the first time around. There were two other tunnels which the boat might have taken her down. If each tunnel led to a different workstation, then Fleur Victor might have been there the whole time. That could mean a few things for the supposed trophy that she held in her hands— there was the possibility that the boat was a test in more ways than one, that Hermione was meant not just to figure out how to get the boat to go, but figure out which boat to use. Perhaps they were meant to use the workshop to identify the falsity of the Triwizard Cup, or simply waste time there. But she hadn't been misdirected that severely before in the tournament, and the winner would probably just win by the lucky chance of choosing the right boat. If she was supposed to choose the fourth boat, with the stone corpse, the same fundamental problem remained. Hermione had never been outright deceived about whether she should take a certain step. There had been unforeseen difficulties and additional challenges, but Hermione had only ever wasted her time by coming to wrong conclusions on her own, whereas the workshop would have been an intentional act of deception. The Triwizard Cup appeared to be authentic under every spell she could cast, which wasn't a high number, admittedly, but Hermione was no appraiser of rare goods— Still, it was the logic of the Triwizard Tournament which ultimately convinced her. When she stepped ashore again, the other boat was still tied to its pole. 
Hermione tried to levitate the Triwizard Cup up through the tunnel and to the surface, but it was just as stubborn as the keys she'd collected. That might have been to prevent the champions from stealing it from each other, but if the Triwizard Cup had functioned as a port key like it ought to have done, then she would have been brought to the judges with no opportunity for anyone else to steal it from her. Maybe it was a product of some other spell that was meant to prevent a champion from removing it from the basin by an unauthorized means, though if anybody had asked Hermione, she would have said that it didn't feel right to permit just one solution and to systematically guard against every alternative option. Knots seemed to come undone whenever she tied the Triwizard Cup to herself, too, so Hermione settled for awkwardly looping a hand through one handle and then painstakingly and painfully climbing back up the way she came, hand over hand and spike over spike. She only cut herself a little. "'Hermione, are you all right?' Dimitri asked as soon as her hand reached above the edge of the pit. His hand grasped hers almost immediately, helping to pull her up. "'I've been better,' Hermione admitted. "'But it's not as bad as it looks.' "'Hermione, you look like you have walked through a slaughterhouse.' She looked back at her robes, dirty and bloody, caked with the moon dust and silvery water, and the gore and viscera of uncounted potions ingredients— Conjured bandages wrapped around her arms here and there, red and brown with blood both fresh and dry. I did say that it doesn't look good, Hermione muttered. But look, I've got it, she said. Hermione tried to lift the Triwizard Cup, but was only able to bring it up to her waist before her arm protested and she lowered it. Did Flora Victor come by while I was down here? What? No. But are you sure that you're all right? Hermione had hoped that someone had arrived while she was working and that their boat had just been replaced by the other, but that obviously hadn't happened. Okay, let's head back then. Should we not wait for Victor and Fleur? Dimitri added. Hermione seriously considered it for a moment, then shook her head. I don't know who's down here, who isn't, how long it'll be before they come up or when the other somebody is going to reach this fucking tower pit. Dimitri, I want to sleep in a bed tonight. Hermione said, I want to sleep for two days straight in a bed. Outside the Toblerone of darkness, the sun was low above the trees. Night was not far off, and whoever it was that Hermione would be waiting on, it was more than possible that they might wait till morning to come here. Let's head back, she said again, and Dimitri offered no protest this time. The journey back was not, objectively, that long. The Forbidden Forest was a pretty walkable place, if you wanted to cut straight through it, and Hermione had her bearings, so she knew exactly what direction to go. Just walk for half an hour or so was easier said than done, when the walker was tired from a dozen different directions, though. Every footstep felt heavier than the last, and the Triwizard Cup was almost dragging on the ground by the time that Hermione reached the end. She could hear the murmur of distant conversation before she saw anyone, but soon enough she was almost clear of the Forbidden Forest. Through the trees she saw the stands, mostly empty, lit by a few shining globules that hung in the air beside what remained of the audience, sitting here and there in clumps. The judges were not all sitting, but had mostly begun to rise from their seats and descend to the ground, while ministry employees stood here and there working at unidentifiable tasks. Griffith shouted something. It sounded positive, but Hermione didn't catch a word. She looked around her as she slogged out from the trees, feet pounding hard on the ground. The first person, the nearest person, she really noticed was a short, balding man who seemed to be expecting one of the trees. Her eyes fell on his ministry badge and lingered there, heavy like the Triwizard Cup was heavy in her hands. 
Where should I take this? she asked, and her body shifted tiredly, as much as she could make it, in the direction of the Triwizard Cup. Just present it to the judges, he said, smiling, and Hermione nodded and turned back. They were coming up to meet her, which was nice, because she was fatigued and quite appreciated that she wouldn't have to walk the whole distance. Why did you walk all this way? asked Madame Maxime. Are we even sure that this is the Triwizard Cup? said the Bulgarian judge, Slanina, if Hermione remembered right. Was there not to be a decoy? All of the judges seemed to have a question or opinion worth voicing, all except for Riddle, until she and they met each other near the middle of the pitch. They stood there for a moment, Hermione too tired to say anything, and the others too surprised that she had arrived first. Disturbed by her appearance, she couldn't possibly imagine to continue speaking until the silence was softly broken. You won, Riddle stated. Behind the locustal buzzing of his voice, it was impossible to tell whether he was pleased or astonished or felt anything about it at all. He might have been remarking on the weather for all Hermione could figure out. I did, Hermione said. And she tried to lift the Triwizard Cup, but it was heavy and her arms were exhausted. And then it lightened, or seemed to rise of its own accord, and Hermione realized that Dimitri had taken hold of it. As she and Dimitri lifted it together, Hermione smiled. Riddle reached out his hand to receive the Triwizard Cup. His fingers closed around its base, and in that moment, Hermione once again felt the uncomfortable yanking sensation of a portkey. For the full text of this and other stories by the same author, visit the Archive of Our Own page of Call Me Saltisside. The music is Amon Ra by Day's Witch, under a Creative Commons license, with assistance from 1T1. If you would like to commission me to record a story, voiceover, or character, please get in touch with me using the contact information on my website, which is located at samgabrielvo.com. And there you can find other stories that I've read, as well as links to my Patreon page, to which I hope you consider subscribing to support me, and my Discord server, where I record things live for your enjoyment. And finally, as always, thank you for listening.